Welcome back to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I'm your new host. Uh, if you listen to the transition episode last week, you know that uh, Kevin and Lee, they decided to take a break from the podcast, but they wanted someone to uh, to continue producing episodes. Uh, we've heard from a lot of people on the Facebook group and in private messages about just how much this podcast means to them, and we wanted it to continue. And since I've been involved with exploring faith, pursuing grace uh, behind the scenes from the very beginning, as well as appearing on a few episodes, uh, they thought that I might be the one to uh, carry on the torch. So we're going to start off here with a solo episode. I do have some guests lined up. Uh, A lot of people have gotten back to me. Some I haven't heard back from yet, but I have some very exciting friends uh, who I've had the pleasure of knowing over the years that are going to come and talk about subjects that mean a lot to them. Everything from uh, meditation techniques that have helped them in reconstructing uh, their faith to really deep studies on things like the Tree of Life. But I'll wait a few weeks before we start announcing what all those uh, topics will be and who all those guests will be, just to make sure they're solidified and we go ahead and get those episodes recorded and things like that. But today what we're going to talk about is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. And when you hear this expression, it's probably going to bring back a lot of negative memories. And it's the expression, faith alone. I'm guessing that if you grew up in an environment like I did, you probably never heard those two words beside each other in a positive light. If the title of a sermon was Faith Alone or something like really anything about faith and grace, it was usually about how That wasn't enough. But then there's another two words in the title of this episode that may cause you a little bit of confusion. You might wonder what they're coming from, and that's the words and beyond. The full title, Faith Alone and Beyond. I want to talk about what this means, how it relates to us, how we can approach this subject as people who maybe come from a Church of Christ background, or at least maybe a more fundamentalist background, and how this sort of relates to reconstructing one's faith. This is a subject that I can't cover in one episode if I want it to be uh, any like a decent length uh, for your for your sake. And so we'll probably revisit the subject a few times uh, in between interviews and things like that. So first, we have to talk about salvation, right? Because that's really what this is all about. What must I do to be saved? We've heard that question asked a gajillion times with plenty of scriptures that we could all throw out to uh, give various acceptable answers to that question, right? What must I do to be saved? But what do we mean by salvation? Another way to word this question uh, is probably what do I need to do to get to heaven, Right? So when people think of salvation, they think of going to hell. When they think of damnation, they think of, uh, rather, when they think of salvation, they think of going to heaven. Right? Uh, when they think of damnation, they think of going to hell. So there is these assumptions that we make when we're talking about what must I do to be saved. Typically, we think of, like, what must I do so that if I were to die right now, that I would get to go to the good place as opposed to the bad place, whatever that might be in your particular tradition. For most of us, it was probably something like eternal conscious torment, but I'm not really sold on that idea anymore, and so I'm just going to leave it open for you to interpret. But anyway, so when we think about salvation, we're typically talking about afterlife stuff, right? Which means that it's pretty typically binary. That is, you're either in or you're out, you're saved, you're not saved. If you're like me, 
I'm sure at one point your Bible class teacher or a preacher or you watched a debate or maybe you even taught a lesson where you drew a circle on the board, right? In the center of that circle uh, is Christ, you know, is the word Christ, and outside of that circle is you're lost. And there was probably some arrows drawn from one to the other, and the question was asked, how do you get into Christ? That is, how do you go from being in a lost state to a saved state? And that's that binary world is usually where discussions on salvation exist, right? However, when we read the New Testament, salvation isn't spoken of quite uh, so much in those categories. Yes, there are passages that talk about you have been saved, like in 1 Timothy chapter 1, for instance. You have been saved. You have eternal life. There's other passages that talk about salvation in a, in a future tense, right? Like the day of salvation. Or uh, Hebrews 9, 28 says, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So there's, there's this idea that you have been saved, but there's also this idea in some passages, you will be saved, right? Or salvation will be revealed at the last time or something like that. And yet there's another category of passages which talk about salvation as this sort of ongoing reality. In 1 Corinthians 15, for instance, he says uh, this gospel by which you are being saved. Okay, so salvation is talked about in the past tense. You have been saved. The future tense, salvation will be revealed. And the present tense, uh, you are being saved. This is a lot more complicated than you are either in or you're out, right? And so sometimes when we're talking about what must I do to be saved or whatever language you prefer to use, um, different people answer based on their understanding of that process. If it's more of a binary process, you're either in or you're out, then they might reach a certain conclusion. However, if one sees it as a progression, as this movement, then they may give an answer uh, that, that hangs out more near the, near the beginning of that process. Maybe instead of focusing so much on baptism being that uh, transitional act that one performs to move from being outside of Christ to being inside Christ, perhaps they focus on faith or, or something like that, a confession. I mean, I don't know. Again, it depends on your particular background. And so how we define salvation plays a lot into how we understand reconciliation and, and being in the right standing with God and things like this. Now, one thing I have to point out is that a lot of this language that I'm using, like uh, you know the right standing with God and uh, things like that, um, are based <laughs> in this whole world of theories about how the blood of Jesus works, right? Is it like a legal transaction? Is it a demonstration of love? Is Jesus's sacrifice what is is it what forgiveness looks like like you have to sacrifice yourself to be willing to to forgive wrongs that have been done been done to you right there's all these theories about how jesus's sacrifice works and that'd be a great you know six-part series maybe sometime in the future with some excellent guests and so a lot of the language that we use about salvation might be dependent upon our particular view of how the atonement works, right? So, so when you get into discussions with the people about what must I do to be saved or what is salvation, there's so much baggage that, that is, uh, it plays into their answers. If they think that Jesus paid a ransom 
to free us from sin, then the language that they use to talk about salvation may be different from the language you use to talk about salvation. If you believe that Jesus was the uh, sort of the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, right? It's going to produce different language, and that language lends itself to different theories about how an individual becomes a Christian or becomes saved, right? But a lot of this hangs out in this binary world of you're either saved or you're lost. And you might be thinking, well, how can you be partway saved or whatever? Well, this is where we have to introduce a few more words um, to our vocabulary. And in the Churches of Christ, we aren't as familiar with these words, or at least I didn't hear these words a lot growing up, as other denominations um, might be. That's the word justification and sanctification. To, to, to make a long story short, justification, from a lot of people's perspective, has to do with like legal standing with God. And so when you're justified, you are technically good to go, right? Uh, but sanctification carries with it the idea of growing in righteousness, growing in holiness, like moving on a trajectory towards uh, what the Bible might call perfection. Not sinless perfection, mind you, but like spiritual maturity, right? And that's kind of going to be the focus of our discussion today, faith alone and beyond. Let me say from the outset uh, that I believe that we are completely and totally saved by the grace of God. Salvation, eternal life is a gift, as Romans 6, 23 says. You know, one passage that uh, from the churches of Christ we're probably all familiar with is Romans three twenty three. I mean, what good invitation isn't complete without some Romans three twenty three? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the very next passage says, they are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So really when we're talking about salvation, people use the language saved by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation is completely and totally a gift from God, right? That's the preferred language of Paul, at least in the book of Romans. All right? But when we're talking about it in this way, we're still thinking in binary terms, right? We are saved or we are lost uh, is the language we're used to using. And so that salvation, that initial point of justification then, is a gift. And the way through which one is justified, Paul explains in Romans 4, is through faith, right? Just as Abraham was justified by faith before he was ever circumcised. That is, before there was ever an outward ceremonial sign of his faith, he was already justified years and years, years, and years earlier, right? Baptism, like circumcision, is that sign or seal of the relationship with God that we had when we began to, to believe in Jesus, right? And so we are justified by our faith. Uh, the household of Cornelius was told that if they believed in Jesus, they would receive the forgiveness of sins. And then at that time when they heard those words, uh, the Holy Spirit fell and testified to the fact that they were saved, right? Testified to the fact that they were uh, children of God by faith. They had received that gift of repentance unto life, as Peter later uh, retold. So that's one side of the coin, right? So what I'm about to say doesn't negate what I just finished talking about, that salvation is a gift. Salvation is by grace through faith, as Scripture 
attest to over and over again. But let's move the discussion. Let's stop thinking about this in terms of uh, elevator salvation. That is, in terms of the goal of the gospel is to get your butt into heaven. <laughs> to use some language from uh, Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christian. Right? It's uh, the words of Neo in that book, if you're familiar with that series. It's, it's more than just getting your butt into heaven, right? getting your rear into heaven. So, uh, salvation, the gospel, is about affecting us in this life, about transforming us in this life for good works, as Paul goes on to say in some of these passages, like in Ephesians 2. We have been chosen, Richard Rohr would say, not to the exclusion of everyone else, but to everyone else's radical inclusion. That is, I've been chosen by God, not because my neighbor hasn't been chosen, but so that I can be a blessing to them, that I can bring them into the, uh, the community of God as well. So when we shift the, the focus of salvation from the afterlife to this life, then when we start talking about faith alone, you see, faith alone isn't good enough in that context because as James would argue in James chapter 2, even the devils believe, right? Anyone can believe in a higher power. Any, anyone can believe in Jesus. But that faith by itself in this, in this new context of not afterlife, uh, heaven or hell, but this life, joy and peace and, uh, and grace and mercy and, and love, faith alone doesn't cut it within that context, right? And by the way, this is the solution, in my mind, to the tension between Romans and James. Paul is talking about the original point of justification in Romans, whereas James is talking about people who have been Christians for years and uh, their faith is not working through love. Their faith is not expressing itself through love. And so they have people coming into their assembly who, who, uh, who are in need, who might be hungry, who are naked, or who, or who don't have you know, access to proper care or whatever, and they're not getting that from those Christians. And so James is like, your faith without works is dead. He's not saying that they're not justified. He's not saying that they're not Christians. He's not saying that they need to get baptized or something like that. He doesn't even have that in mind. What he's saying is, is that you guys have been called for a purpose, and it's not to sit around believing all day. <laughs> it's to do something, to work, to, to care for the needy, to care for the poor, to care for the oppressed. These aren't works to earn our salvation, but they're the natural production, they're the natural fruit of someone who has been justified, of someone who really has bought into this Jesus story right? This context, not of afterlife, heaven, or hell, but bringing heaven or hell to this earth, depending upon our actions, to me is much more interesting, and it's much more profitable for the church. It takes us away from just looking forward to the time that we die, or being afraid of the time that we die, to how can I make this world a better place through the gospel of Jesus, right? This is what the differences between James and Romans. James isn't worried about the original point of justification. These people have been Christians for years. What he's worried about are people who are basically existing for themselves. They're not making a bigger impact on the world around them. The knowledge that one is justified by faith and has no condemnation in Christ transforms them into a new creation. Romans chapter 8 
Paul says very plainly, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? That's a beautiful truth. He goes on to say that there is absolutely nothing in the world that can take you away from the love of God. Nothing exists in the universe. This world, the world to come, life, death, principality, power, persecutions, trouble, sickness, death, none of that can take you out of the love of God. What does that motivate you to do, though? Sit around? Serve yourself? Exist, like, only for you? That's, that's one of the failures, I think, of the modern church, is it exists for the church. The church and worship services and things like that shouldn't just exist for the people that have been Christians for years. It's to bless the world around us. And unless we break out of those four walls, then we're only ever just going to serve ourselves and our numbers are still going to dwindle because we're not being who God has called us to be. We're being chosen for our own personal benefit and not chosen to be a blessing to literally everyone in the entire universe, right? So this is what I mean by faith alone and beyond. It's about understanding, yes, the model that we were given growing up, that you have to follow these steps, and if someone dies on the way to the baptistry, they're just out of luck or whatever, is, is faulty and toxic and everything, like, you know, everything else, that we are justified by faith. However, there's something beyond that. There's something more to it. We, we, had, we were on the right track, in a sense, when we were talking about works. We just had the wrong works in mind. We were thinking about religious actions, five steps of salvation, five acts of worship, or whatever. What we should have been talking about is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, tending to the sick, visiting those in prison, caring for the oppressed. Those are the things that, that Jesus had in mind, that James had in mind, when he was talking about works. It wasn't about earning your way to heaven. It was about understanding that you've been so richly blessed that you shouldn't be able to help but to be a blessing to those around you. All right. You're following me. I hope so. If not, that's cool. Hey, look, just uh, pause it there. Go back, re-listen to it, whatever. But I'm pretty sure we should all be on the same track here. So what I want to do is take this idea, faith alone and beyond, and apply it to a parable. It's a parable you're probably all familiar with, and it's a parable that's probably been abused to some extent. It's from Matthew chapter 25. This is called the parable of the talents. Now, there's a, a similar parable to this found in Luke's account of the Gospels, uh, but you can go and look that up on your own time. We're just going to take a look here at Matthew 25, verse 14. Let's read this whole section, and then I'm going to go back and break it down, uh, shifting the focus from the afterlife to this life. And when we do that, watch how the parable comes alive. For it is as if a man going on a journey, that is, he's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and trusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one with uh, the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. 
You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. You did, rather you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one with the ten talents, for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which to me seems a bit harsh. <laughs> I mean, you know, like uh, you get your one talent back and you're like, all right, cast him into outer darkness. Off with his head. You know, it's a bit over the top, it seems, right? Which that's what parables are supposed to be. Parables are supposed to be over the top to get a point across about some spiritual reality, right? We all know that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings, but I think it's much more than that. Parables are earthly stories with earthly meanings. <laughs> that is, they have an original earthly meaning that has implications for life in the kingdom of God right here, right now. Now let's look at this from the binary heaven-hell sort of scenario. First off, it seems to be implying that there are rewards uh, in heaven, in a sense, right? Because the one guy who you know who uh, multiplied his talents from five to ten made it a much better job than the dude who had you know two to four, so he gets kind of a better reward than the other guy, right? Meanwhile, this other slave, he's just cast into outer darkness, and he's just uh, he's just in for it, right? I mean, he's going to get just obliterated, apparently, in verse 30, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That does not sound like a very good time. So when we look at it from heaven-hell perspective, the idea is you better get to work because if, uh, if you don't get to work, then you know Jesus is going to blast you when he comes back. All right? That's the idea. But let's pause for a moment. Let's look back through this parable, and let's see what the implications might be for it if it was meant to be read as an encouragement of how we live today. And the rewards and the punishments have more to do with uh, the immediate rewards and punishments uh, one might receive if they live according to these different examples we're given in Matthew 25, right? So first off, the parable is about the kingdom of God, which I interpret to mean this parable is about life in the kingdom of God, the benefits of living according to the gospel. So the first two guys... Uh, one gets the five talents. Uh, he increases that to uh, to ten. The other guy gets the two. He goes in to four. And both of these guys are told, enter you in to the joy of your master. Now, in this context, it seems like the joy of the master is being able to be in charge of more stuff. <laughs> Look what he says. Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. So this isn't like, okay, go rest, you know, go hang out. You made it, dude. Go sit on the beach and uh, listen to the angels play their harps or whatever. No, it's I'm going to put you in charge of more. Like, hey, you did such a good job here. Go on to big and better things, right? That's what the first two slaves are told. But then the third, 
Notice the conversation again. All right. He says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. Where did he get this? Who, who told him that? I'm <laughs> thinking back to the Patrick Mead videos, right? Who told you about the harsh master? That's what, that's what basically the response is, right? The master, uh, he responds, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, <laughs> that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? In other words, this was your impression of who I was, and your response to that is to go bury the, <laughs> go bury the talent in the ground. Like, really, that's what you're going to do with it? Like, if you really believe that I reap where I do not sow, then shouldn't you have taken this to the money changers as well and increased it even more? See, what's happened here in, in Matthew 25 is this wicked servant uh, that we read about, he has just put himself through so much stress and anxiety because of how he perceives his master, right? He feels like the master is, is cruel, is, uh, you know, is going, to, is going to expect way more of this guy than he could ever fulfill or whatever. He, he feels like this master is someone who is not to be trusted, is, is not to be loved, maybe doesn't love. And so he's just paralyzed by fear. And notice what the response is. He takes it from him, he gives it to the other guy. But then he's thrown into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you could say, okay, this is talking about hell. This guy's been sent to hell. But let me ask you this. Think back to your earlier years as a Christian. I'm going to assume that you were raised like me. You were raised believing that if you were driving your car down the road and an 18-wheeler crossed into your lane and you dropped a... Uh, you dropped a cuss word there, maybe you dropped the F-bomb or something, and then the 18-wheeler smashed you and you died, like, God's going to basically say, okay, Daniel, man, you did really great. You never, missed a, you never missed a gospel meeting. Like, you left football practice early so you can make it to the gospel meeting on time. Way to go, you know? You skipped that important athletic banquet <laughs> so that you could go to Wednesday night Bible class and talk about baptism for the 15th time this year. You did awesome. Uh, but you know what? Man... Had you not said that cuss word, you could have come right in. But off to hell you go, because if you offend the law at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. What kind of life is that, right? Like, how does that make you feel on a day-to-day basis? Is, is the universe a safe place? Is, is God someone that you can trust? Can you actually be a friend to Jesus, as that old song goes? I mean, really? Like, what kind of life? Maybe a way that you could describe this kind of life is one of weeping, outer darkness, and gnashing of teeth. In other words, if our perception of God cripples us with fear, paralyzes us with fear, and makes it so that we're afraid to even express ourselves we're afraid to ask questions we're afraid to go out there and even even try you know if we we feel like one little thing we do is just gonna you know banish us to the shadow realm or something you know like (laughs) we're just so afraid of god then of course our life is going to be miserable but if we understand the freedom that we have in Christ, if we understand that God is someone who wants us to use our use our talents, even if we crash and burn, right? Even if it doesn't work out, even if we have a million failed projects or whatever, 
that he still loves us, he still roots us for. Man, what kind of freedom is that? What kind of joy do we have in that situation? Do you see how this parable then comes to life? It's not something about uh, where you go when you die, although it might have implications for that. We might could understand it from that perspective. But it is, it's alive. It has a message for us today. It challenges our perceptions of who God is. Yeah, if you think that God is, a, is, is, is uh, so particular and picky about that, of course you're going to have a miserable life. Of course you're always going to be looking over your shoulder. Of course, whenever the cop car pulls up beside you at your red light, you're automatically going to assume that you're just busted because that's the type of mentality you've been trained to have. But when we relinquish that perception of God and we learn that God is someone who we can love and trust and who loves us dearly, then we have a little bit of freedom there to, to try new things, to express ourselves, to lift our hands, to not be afraid to clap <laughs> in, in services, right? Like we're, we're not so worried all the time. It takes away that, that spiritual anxiety that we have. We can be more like that five talent or that two talent servant who were blessed to enter into the joy of the master, not living in constant crippling fear. Now I want you to take this way of, of reading the parables, especially the parables that have uh, judgment and weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness and things at the end and reread re them through this new lens, through this new sort of hypothesis, I guess, that it's not just limited to an afterlife discussion. It's not just limited to where you go when you die, but it has implications for how you live now. Think about the parable of the sheep and the goats. What kind of joy do you get whenever you take care of those who are in need? Or whenever you're able to genuinely help someone out of a difficult situation? How would you describe that? Would you not describe that as life to the fullest? Or, to use the uh, literal translation, everlasting life or eternal life, right? Or what happens, though, when you know there's a situation where you can help someone and you refuse to do it? What does that feel like? Does that not feel like being cast into outer darkness? Does your conscience uh, not burn whenever you avoid doing something that you know could help someone else out, right? Isn't that kind of the idea in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats? It's about the quality of life that we can have. Yeah, does it have implications for afterlife stuff? Sure, we can grant that. Does it have end times application? Sure, we can grant that. But how does it affect us here and now? The eternal life stuff, the life to the fullest stuff, abundant life is something we can experience now through the gospel. It's not something that you have to wait on until you die. But at the same time, and is equally important, hell Outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, those are realities that exist around us as well. Just think back to different times in your life. Uh, think back to uh, things like the Holocaust or other uh, acts of, of genocide or war or things like that. Think about what the world looks like without this message of love that we have in the gospel of Jesus. Is that not hell? Do those things not to be... not not need to be uh, you know, done away with here in this world through the power of Jesus? I mean, are those not things that we should try to avoid from ever happening again? I mean, look at what's happening in Ukraine right now with Russia. I mean, is, 
is the gospel of Jesus not effective in this life, right? I mean, what would happen if people everywhere turned their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, right? Like, what kind of world would we have? So, when we talk about faith alone and beyond, what we mean is, let's move the debate about what must I do to be saved or whatever from this binary, where do you go when you die, to how can we bring heaven to earth now? How can we make this world today a new creation? How can I make my block a better place to live? How can I make my church a better place for people to attend? More gracious, more loving, whatever. How can I make my city, my, my country, the world a better place? To me, that is much more interesting than a debate about where we go when we die. And to me, it's much more important because how we live here, seems to me, kind of reflects what kind of afterlife experience we have. The rich man, he wasn't a bad guy, was he? What was, what was, what was his deal? He didn't help out someone in that life. He got his reward by living the way that he did while he was alive. Lazarus, however, he needed serious help, and nobody extended that to him. Let's bring paradise to earth. Let's move the discussion beyond faith alone versus faith plus works versus baptism versus outward sign of an inward grace or whatever to something that we can see with our eyes, hear with our ears, feel in our hearts every single day of our lives, and that is a faith that expresses itself in love because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. All right. What is it, like 30 minutes? That's a pretty good sermon length, right? Not too long for our first solo episode. We don't want to burn you out too quick on me. And uh, we'll start trying to have some guests here in the next few weeks. Like I said, I got some uh, great ideas lined up, and I hope you'll join me there. Uh, Before I leave you, I want to share with you a couple of resources. First is my personal website, danielr.net. I've got blogs, uh, hundreds of blogs on there that I've written over the years, all the way back to when I was a little bit more... uh, Oh, well, you know. And I've got videos on my YouTube channel. Just search Daniel Rogers on YouTube and scroll down past all of the uh, videos debunking me or whatever. Uh, Then you'll find uh, my YouTube channel where I've got videos, uh, tons of videos for you to watch and more videos to come, especially now that I'm doing this podcast. And uh, those two resources there, danielr.net and then my YouTube channel, Hopefully it will be invaluable to you and will hold you over until the next episode posts. Thank you so much for allowing me to, uh, to be in your ear this morning. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I hope you have a great day. May God bless you in all you do.